Our Old Testament reading is um, from the prophet Isaiah, and we are in chapter 55, verse 11. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. This is the word of the Lord. And from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 6, beginning verse 7. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, in this moment, we ask that you would be so kind to do the very thing that you've promised to do. And Lord, it is the thing this afternoon that we have come here for. It is the thing that only you can do. And that is by the power of your spirit that you would shine light on this, your word. Would you shine light on the words that I've prepared? Lord, would you shine light in places in our hearts where the light needs to be shown? Lord, and would you use your word, Lord, to give us great hope tonight in our Lord Jesus, and it's in his name that we pray, amen. It seems that, as I think about it, there are three great movements of the Christian life. And I want to show them to you and explain them to you as movements. Like I'm going to act it out for you. It seems like, at least the scriptures teach us, that in and of ourselves, we are naturally curved and we're bent inward. And because we're naturally curved in on ourselves, the first great movement of the Christian life is to look up and look up to our Lord who has made us, loves us, redeemed us. And then the second great move of the Christian life, if the first one is to look up, it seems that the second one, because we're naturally curved in ourselves, we look up, but then we look out and we look out to others. It's Jesus himself who said that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord God with all our hearts and then to love our neighbors as ourselves. And what I'm learning is that there is a third great movement of the Christian life. Once we look up to God, our creator, and we look out to our neighbor who we're supposed to love, it seems like there's a third movement equally as difficult and the third movement is to go from control over our lives to letting 
and go. And that's what this sermon is about this afternoon. See, when we pray, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're saying something about our tendency to hold on and maintain so tightly control over our lives. And instead, we're saying that we want to learn somehow to do this. I wonder if you know what I mean. And of course, our tendency to do this is understandable. I mean, first of all, have you seen the world out there? So many things that make us feel like we're supposed to do this. I mean, I mean, secondly, there's just the circumstances, not that are out there, but are just in here. And that are in here. It tries to convince us that the posture of our life is supposed to be something like this. But when our Savior teaches us to pray, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He's telling us something about what it means to do this. And in fact, that's the main thing I want you to hear this afternoon. If you don't hear anything else I say this afternoon, I think what I want you to hear is that we have a kind and gracious God who enacts his will. And that gives us the freedom to let it go to trust him. Now, to make that point to you, this sermon's gonna have three parts to it, okay? Part one, I want us to discuss and describe and to try to get our hearts and minds and souls around what the Bible means when it talks about the will of God. It's a complex idea in the Bible. It's a complex idea in the Christian tradition. We're gonna try to describe it and get our, our hands around it, I guess. And then secondly, the second part of the sermon, I want us to just try to ask the question, what are we really asking for when we're asking that the Lord's will be done? What are we saying to God when we say those words? What are we asking for? And then thirdly, I want to describe to you what Jesus Christ has done. What Jesus has done to ensure us of all these things. So what is the will of God? What are we really asking God for in this part of the prayer? And then finally, what has Jesus done? So let's take a look at this together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Verse 10, your kingdom come, your will be done. What are we talking about when we talk about God's will? See, Christians for centuries, for a couple thousands of years, a couple thousand years have tried to describe and have tried to figure out and have tried to ask questions and to write treatises and to think deeply and carefully about this concept of the will of God. And they've described it in at least some of the following ways. 
Theologians have talked about God's will of decree, meaning the kinds of things that God has in some moment decided to do and the things he is sure to make happen. That's what some theologians call his will of decree. Others talk about God's will of desire. So maybe not necessarily the things that God has said will happen, but maybe the things that God desires to happen. So for example, his law would be an example of his will of desire. See, when he says something like, thou shalt not murder, he's expressing his desire that we not murder. But of course, he does not prevent any murder from ever happening. That's something of a difference of God's will of decree or his will of desire which then leads theologians to ask questions about something they might call God's permissive will. So what does God allow or permit to happen? Other theologians ask questions about what they call God's hidden will, things that he is deciding to do that he doesn't necessarily make plain and show us. Sometimes as Christians, we talk about God's specific will. So for example, if I'm going to take this job or that job or move to that neighborhood or this neighborhood or begin this new endeavor or that new endeavor, sometimes we ask, we wonder what God's will is for us. And we mean something like a specific piece of guidance in a particular situation. I think every one of these ways of understanding God's will is is helpful and important to think about. But for simplicity's sake tonight and closer to what I think a a sermon is for, I want to just describe God's will to you in this simple way. Think of God's will as God's resolve. Think, Think that he's made up his mind. It's God's resolve to do the things that he knows are right and to do the things that he knows is best. Think of God's will like that. It's an extension of his character. It's his intense commitment, his resolve to do what he knows is best and to do what he knows is right. Of course, when we pray, thy will be done, of course, we are saying something. We're praying something of our Desire to be yielded to that. We want to be yielded to what he knows is right. We want to be yielded to what he knows is best. But I think there's something even deeper that Jesus is teaching us here. Look with me again at verse 10. Your kingdom come, your will be done, and then it follows on earth as it is in heaven. So what Jesus is hinting at in this prayer, and what Christians have wrestled with in this prayer, thy will be done, is just the plain reality that there is a disconnect. There's a disconnect between the things that God has done and is doing and is true in the heavenly realm Versus the kind of things we feel and see and experience in the earthly realm. There's a disconnect. So for example, when our Lord Jesus says, hallowed be your name. 
We're being taught something of the need that we have to always honor and respect and treasure our Lord above everything. But of course, we live in this world and we realize that God's name is not always treasured and valued above all things the way in which it should be. John taught us last week about this idea of God's kingdom. We, we learned that God's kingdom is here in the person and work of Jesus. In the mission of our Lord in this world by the power of his spirit through his people, in those things, God's kingdom is here. But we look around in our world and we notice that it's not here in its fullness quite yet. And in the same way, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven is our acknowledgement that there are things that are good and there are things that are right and there are things that are best, but we don't always experience that. In fact, we experience lots of people who disobey God's will. We experience lots of instances in our own life where we disobey God's will. So what's going on here? Martin Luther was really helpful on this point. And here's what Luther taught in general. It's just the idea that God's will, of course, cannot be stopped. But Satan and the power of evil, and the power of death and darkness is resolved to try to discourage and distract and destroy God's people. That in every instance, in every situation in your life and mine, evil is trying to destroy and distract and discourage and play the role of spoiler. Satan, evil, sin, and darkness is deeply frustrated that it cannot thwart the will of God. So now what it looks to do is to injure and hurt God's people. This is what Luther said in his smaller catechism. What do we mean when we say God's will, thy will be done? Luther writes, God's will is done Every time he breaks and hinders every evil plan and purpose of the devil, the world and our sinful nature, which do not want us to hallow his name or see his kingdom come, but yet he strengthens us and he keeps us firm in his word and faith even till we die. This is his good and gracious will. So what Luther is trying to say is that evil would seek to distract, destroy, and encourage us. But it is our God who is completely and utterly committed to protect us, to preserve us, and everything that wants to destroy us. In other words, you and I can let it go because we know we have a God who's committed to our good at every turn. 
Y'all, I've been a pastor for 19 years in some shape or form or fashion. And one of the things I've learned in pastoral ministry over the years, if there's one lesson I've really learned in pastoral ministry over these years, and specifically over these years at Grace Fellowship, if there's one thing that I've really learned in pastoral ministry, it is to take evil seriously. There are certain things that happen. There are certain things that our enemy would want to use to distract and destroy. And it is so profound and so serious that you really can't explain it any other way. But see, it's our God who is committed to protect us. So part two, what are we really asking our God to do when we pray, thy will be done? What are we asking of him? See, when I would pray, your will be done, growing up as a Christian person, I used to think thy will be done, saying that phrase was something like saying to God, and I wonder if you can relate with this. I thought it was something like saying to God, Never mind. Lord, this is my circumstance. This is my difficulty. This is what I hope and this is what I desire. This is what I need you to do. But, but never mind if you've decided otherwise. I wonder if you can relate with that. Instead, I think it's something like this. I think when we pray that will be done, we're saying something like this and I'll put it in my own words. I think we're saying something like, Lord, Lord, this is my situation. And right now, fill in the blank of what that situation is for you right now. What is that situation for you right now? I'm sure you walked in this afternoon and you already know what it is. Lord, this is my situation. You think of yours. And I think what we're saying is, Lord, this is my situation. And I think it's okay to lament that situation before the Lord, to say something to him like, I'm frustrated that this is my situation. I hate that this is my situation. I hate that this is the thing. And I think it is okay to request from him. In fact, it's important to ask him to intervene and to change that situation. But I think when we pray that will be done, we're saying something like this, Lord, this is my situation. It might be a, a physical pain or stress or struggle. It might be an emotional one, a mental one, a relational one, some kind of circumstance in your life. And if you live long enough as a human being in this world, you'll learn that all those are connected to each other all the time. But when we pray that will be done, I think we're saying something like, Lord, this is my situation. And I'm asking you to help, to preserve me through it, to protect me in it, to strengthen me in the midst of it, to guard me, to keep me, to shield me, to comfort me, to be near to me. I'm asking you to not allow the power of evil and death and darkness, not to allow Satan to steal, kill, and destroy me in it. I'm asking you to, in this dark thing, to take it. To be with me in it. And to help me get through it. 
because that's what our God wills to do for us. And when we pray, thy will be done, it does not necessarily mean that our circumstances will necessarily get easier. But what it does mean is that he will give us comfort in the midst of those particular circumstances. And it does not mean that we'll be taken from those circumstances necessarily. But what it does mean is that we will be brought through those circumstances. Because again, that is what he wills to do. Do you see how that helps you go from this to this? Third question we need to ask tonight. Okay, Joel, sounds good. But how do you know? And the reason we know that our God wills to protect us and to persevere us through any scheme of the devil, and the reason we know that he commits to do what is good and right to persevere us through every pain and difficulty, the reason we can be sure of this, hear me this afternoon, is because of the person and work of Jesus. And I want to unfold that for you in just a few ways. First, I want you to remember that it is the Lord Jesus himself who prays this very prayer in the garden. Remember, he is in anguish because of the darkness. He's in anguish because of the pain and difficulty of what he will endure on the cross. He is not happy with his circumstance and situation. But he is asking the Father to be near him in it in such a way that he can preserve, be preserved through it faithfully. He's, of course, an example of what it means to yield to God's will, but at the same time to seek the Father's grace and mercy through the darkest of circumstances. See, it's Jesus in the garden who is saying to the Father, Lord, this is my situation. And I'm asking you to help me, to preserve me, to protect me, to strengthen me, to guard me, to keep me, and to shield me, and to comfort me, and to be near to me. I'm asking you to not allow the power of death and darkness to still kill and destroy. See, Jesus himself knows what it means to pray to the Father, thy will be done. And when we find ourselves praying that kind of prayer to Lord, we are in good company with the Lord Jesus. And being in good company with the Lord Jesus is its own kind of reward. Secondly, Jesus gets up from that moment yielded. But walking in step with the Father by the power of the Spirit to the cross. And I've said this to you more than one time, but I wanna say it to you freshly this afternoon. In Jesus' death on the cross, the scriptures teach that he destroyed the power of the devil. That he triumphed over the rulers and the principalities. 
This is the Bible's language for demonic powers and forces. He broke the power of sin. Jesus goes to the cross as the great victor over sin and death and darkness. He's raised from the dead. And Jesus, by the power of his spirit, pours it out on us as his people to make us alive in him. And at this very moment, the Bible teaches that our Lord Jesus has ascended to the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And at this very moment, the Lord Jesus himself is doing two things. Have you ever wondered, what is Jesus doing right now? Two things. The Bible says, number one, he is upholding the universe by the word of his power, which is a way of saying you and I can do this. And then secondly, and preciously, he is praying for you right now. So there's a moment when Jesus is is talking to Peter. It's a critical moment in the gospel story. And Jesus looks at Peter and says, Peter, Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you. And the Lord Jesus is doing that same thing for you right now. See, it's because we have a God who enacts his will and his will understood in the way I'm describing it tonight. It's because we have that kind of God. It's because we have that kind of God that we can rest secure and we can let it go. Maybe there's a fourth great movement of the Christian life. Maybe if movement one is to be not curved in ourselves, but to look to God, and movement two is to then look out to others, and movement three is to learn to let it go, maybe movement four is to regrip again, but the promises of God in the midst of whatever. I want to encourage you to take hold of the promises of Jesus even tonight. Let's pray.